We're back. Thank you, back. Hey, friends! You're listening to Life in Theater, the podcast where theater people of all kinds come to reconnect with why we chose this life in theater and spill the tea. On this show, we discuss their careers, what they wish they knew when they were starting, current theater culture where they would like to see this art form go in the future, and much, much more. I'm your host, Tyler Calhoun, and I'm so, so happy that you decided to spend some time with me today. Hello, friends. Thank you, thank you, thank you for taking the time to join me on another episode of Life in Theater. I really appreciate that you're here, and I know that I say it all the time, it's because I mean it all the time. (laughs) Did you know that 2020 was like the biggest year for podcast growth so far? It's true. So the fact that I've still got people who listen and engage with the show means the world to me. So, thanks. And one of the ways that I wanted to show my appreciation was with a giveaway of a mug with the Life in Theater podcast logo on it. Yeah, I hope you saw that on Instagram. I had a little giveaway going on, and I'm going to announce the winner of that giveaway at the end of this episode. So stay tuned for that. How is life for all of you going? I really want to know. That's why I'm asking. What are you doing to keep yourself sane right now? Do you have anything that you're looking forward to? I want to know, so send me an email or DM and let's chat. Also, as a kind of sidebar, but also kind of related to that topic, I want to quickly shout out my friend Hava Russell, who is a theater artist and improviser in Michigan. Um, She's also part of the PYM Girls. That's the pretty, young, and motivated girls on Instagram. She recently started a program with them called Playdate, which explores the value of play for adults. We briefly get into that actually toward the end of this episode, and play is so freaking important, especially now during the quarantine and pandemic when life is really freaking hard. You really need to be playing. So how do you play? A big form of play for me during the pandemic has been makeup. I started doing eyeshadow looks based on different Pokemon, and honestly, I'm living. It's been fun. So if you're needing some more play in your life, consider following Playdate on Instagram, at Playdate for Adults. Yay! Okay, friends, let's get into the gig. This episode is not all fun and games, kittens. Today we are getting into trauma. The trauma of it all. <laughs> Jokes aside, trauma is very real. And many people experience trauma in some form during their lives. Truth be told, I think that we'll all have some form of trauma from the current global experience we've been dealing with for the last year, but that's just me. (laughs) We need to know how to work with and through trauma. And thanks to a listener's suggestion from Imaginary Theater Co. on Instagram, shout out to Imaginary Theater Co. I chose to focus an episode in this series on trauma-informed ways of making theater. My guest is currently working on a grant to connect with artists engaging in this work, and I'm so grateful he took the time to share some of what he's learned so far. So get excited for this week's guest. It's Andrew Morton. Andrew Morton is an award-winning playwright and theater maker who creates socially engaged theater with and for vulnerable populations. Like Erica Phillips from my previous interview, which you should definitely listen to if you haven't, I met Andrew during the June 2020 Sojourn Theater Summer Teaching Artist Institute. Shout out to Sojourn. I met a ton of lovely folks from that workshop. 
Andrew is currently based in Detroit, where he is a project manager for Time Slips, an award-winning international nonprofit that promotes creative engagement techniques for people living with dementia. He also works as a teaching artist and facilitator with a variety of social service and arts organizations, including University Musical Society at the University of Michigan, Waterworks Theater Company, the Enos Center for Children, and the Detroit Phoenix Center, and was recently named a 2020 Crees Artist Fellow. His next project, Sofa Stories, created with young people who have experienced homelessness, will be presented in multiple spaces in Detroit throughout 2021. Andrew is engaging in some incredible work like that work that really just makes you feel good that people are actually doing this kind of stuff you know what i mean so i can't wait for y'all to hear about it so sit back with your tea snack or a notepad and pen if you're like me and enjoy So thank you so much, Andrew Morton. I really appreciate you joining me on the Life in Theater podcast. How are you doing today? Uh, I'm really well, thank you. Good. I would love it if you could start off this episode by telling the listeners in your own words what it is that you do in theater. So I would uh, probably call myself a playwright first, mm-hmm. but I, I do, a, a, you know, like many folks in, in our industry, a lot of things. I, I direct as well. I, um, I do a lot of devised work as well. Most of my sort of professional work as, as a theater artist has been with young people. So that's definitely an area too that I'm, I'm really passionate about. And I think to like to, to people sort of outside of theater, I often describe my work also as like socially engaged theater or maybe community-based theater as well. I know that's language that maybe mm-hmm. insiders might understand a little bit better too, but I will often tell folks that I um, quite often will work sort of more outside of the mainstream kind of traditional theater spaces or institutions working with populations who might not even consider themselves to be um, artists or performers, creating work that often has some sort of focus on either social justice issues or other kind of shared issues of concern. Yes, I love that. That is so in line with what we talk about on this podcast all the time. But to kind of take it back a little bit, I would love to know what made you want to get into theater in the first place? I grew up in a, uh, a very musical family yeah. and my whole family are like brass musicians or, you know, have some kind of musical talent. And I would say that I, you know, I, I do also have that. It's just certainly not something I have maintained yeah. compared to like other, like my brothers uh, as a musician, both my parents are as well. But both uh, my brother and I actually probably one of the sort of only two people in, in our family or sort of generations that there's always been like a lot of creativity in our lives, but we are probably the only two that are sort of have made kind of like a, a career out of it. Yeah. And I think for me, like it was, uh, I loved the fact that I grew up in a family that sort of enjoyed art and culture and exposed me to different kinds of culture at a very young age. Mm-hmm. But I just never really felt the same kind of passion for music and that that sort of live performance as like, other members yeah. of my family do. I respect it uh, immensely, obviously. But I think for me, as I started to get a little bit older, I was really more interested in, in storytelling and obviously, you know, musicians yeah. would would say too that you can tell a story in music without words. Oh, absolutely. But I was always, I think, a little bit more interested in the stories that did have words. Yeah. And yeah, I think that was kind of like my first sort of entry into that. And and so started to just get engaged a little bit more with in theater programs in school. 
I am from the UK originally. I moved to uh, to Michigan in the mid '90s with my parents and my brother for uh, my dad's job. And so, just before I'd left, um, I was kind of starting to get involved in like drama at the, the my school in England. Yeah. And then actually, when I when I moved to Michigan too, like it was really weird to move from England to like the middle of Michigan and you know speak the language, but also like feel so like culturally there were so many differences. Yeah. But then like finding like my sort of niche in that new school community in um, like finding the theater people and the, and the drama kids. Right. Yeah. And so that, and that was, um, yeah, I think that's kind of what started me on, on that journey. And, and again, feeling like very supportive parents and family who uh, never really questioned my desire to try and sort of make a career out of this. Oh, that's a beautiful thing. So I feel really, really blessed to be able to still be doing it. Yes, that's amazing. It's really beautiful what can happen when parents support, you know, what their kids want to do in this world. It's really cool. I mean, I, I still like tease my dad a little bit, but he will. I played the the cornet yeah. for many years, and I switched to baritone. My dad and my brother are both tuba players, and often if I'll meet sort of like family friends, and they'll ask like, "Oh, do you play?" and I'll say no, and my dad will usually like right away step in and say like, "Oh, but he was so good. He had such a beautiful tone." <laughs> and so I sort of tease him now that it's like I, you know, I'm a, a published playwright, and I'm really right. proud of that. I sort of like joke with him. I was like, "When will that be enough for you?" I know I gave up the cornet, but like, you know. <laughs> I'm a published playwright. Isn't that it's something? Oh my god! Um, and again, like it's not—it's uh, all very playful. My my parents are very proud of me, and I'm very grateful for that. Oh, totally. I think that a lot of artists, though, have a similar <laughs> thing going on with their parents. I know I do. <laughs> <laughs> now, you said that you started getting involved in drama in the UK before you moved to Michigan, and then that kind of continued when you were in school. I'm curious, how did you find your way into the kind of like niche? part of theater that does involve like social justice and the work that you do now mostly by going back to the uk actually yeah so yeah i i stayed in michigan for uh for undergrad i did my undergrad at the university of michigan flint and had some wonderful uh professors and was like really grateful for that sort of foundation i guess in, in theater but definitely towards the end of my my time there I knew quite clearly that I wasn't interested in like a career on the stage. Like I didn't want to be an actor. Yeah. I didn't quite know yeah. if I wanted to be a writer. I was entertaining or sort of dancing around that idea. But I actually had another professor in sociology who introduced me to the work of Augusta Boal. And that was definitely like a sort of uh, life-changing sort of transformative moment in my formative years. And when I discovered that and sort of dived into that, uh, his writing and, and that sort of whole world of, of theater and performance, mm -hmm. that definitely set me on a, on a different kind of trajectory. Then I graduated in 2004 and it's, you know, weird now to think that like 2004 were much, you know, simpler days politically. <laughs> definitely but even then like i remember having conversations with like friends of mine who were like oh man like I, I wish i could like get out of this country for a while yeah um and i was like actually you know what like i can <laughs> like i'm uh, i'm a british citizen i can go back to england for as long as i want That's amazing so i that wasn't the, the only reason i went but i started to kind of look uh, uh i definitely i felt at that moment too like i wanted to go back to uk and like live as an uh, as a well i thought an adult um <laughs> For a couple of years and so um yeah i did i went back to, to the uk and i did a master's degree in london uh, and that was focused in kind of community arts and um social engaged theater and did a lot more um sort of exploration of like boal's work and form theater 
And um, yeah, then um, found myself kind of running a youth theatre program in a small uh, sort of community in South East London for a while. That was like one of my best jobs ever, working at a tiny little fringe theatre in the middle of a what we'd call like a large housing estate. So it was a really lovely example of a theatre that was literally on the doorstep of like the community. Yeah, we we had a really great relationship with the community. People felt like. It was a space where they could come and, and see work that was reflecting, reflective of their community, but also like really like weird, obscure work that they would probably never see either. So that definitely was like a huge, I think in those years, like a really kind of cemented, like the kind of theater that I was really interested in doing. Yeah. But then I decided to come back to the States in probably it was about, I think, 2009. I sort of realized that I wasn't quite in a place to like commit to living in uh, London for the rest of my life. I still had family here and decided it was a good time to come back. And yeah, almost 10 years ago now. Wow. I'm not surprised either that, you know, you found your way into this this realm by going back to the UK because this style and this, you know, using theater in these contexts is much more prevalent in Europe. Yeah, definitely. And, and sort of... Um, Again, with a lot of the work that I've done as, as a you know professional theater maker, being in the world of like right. theater for young audiences too, like it's so different or like attitudes to kind of like what is appropriate to do or say yep. on stage, you know, is mind boggling how different it is. Uh, oh, that is, that is so <laughs> true. We could do a whole nother episode on that. Right. <laughs> But speaking of children's theater, you received grant funding from the Children's Theater Foundation of America to do the work that we're talking about. So I'm wondering if you would be willing to tell us a little bit about the grant that you received and what sort of work you're doing with it. I'd love to. Yeah, I um, I got a grant last year from um, from the foundation. Uh, specifically, it's the Orrin Harris Fellowship, uh, named for a sort of giant in the world of children's theater in this country. And it's, you know, available for, for anyone to, to apply to. So I suggest people, you know, look it up. Uh, you can apply for it for different reasons. And I sort of pitched my project as primarily like a professional development, mm-hmm. um, sort of skill building exploration, I guess. And I have been increasingly um, interested in the last few years about trauma-informed practices in TYA and feeling that there was, there's been many times in my life and career where I've done work in, in this field that definitely feels like there's kind of a therapeutic aspect to it. And maybe sometimes like the lines get a little too blurred. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I have friends and colleagues who are drama therapists and I have great respect for that field. And I also have friends and colleagues who are very clear about kind of describing themselves in the work they do as theater artists, theater practitioners who do work that has a therapeutic element. Right. I don't quite know where I put myself in that sort of uh, scale, I guess. Mm -hmm. So I definitely wanted to just like do a little bit more research and figure out who else is sort of thinking about these things and these questions and who are companies or organizations that maybe are doing really important and and innovative work in that area, sort of really thinking intentionally about if we're doing work with a vulnerable population, whether that's youth or others, what other sort of things do we need to keep in mind to make sure that the work that we do is appropriate, uh, not exploiting people and their stories and not creating more harm either. So yeah, I was really, really thankful to to get the the support. Um, Obviously, like many folks over the last year, like what I originally had pitched to do was to uh, to travel to a few sites across the country and, and visit with some individuals and some companies and observe their work. Right. So I had to kind of put that on hold for the time being. I'm hopeful I might be able to make some trips. Maybe later this year, we'll see. Yes, I hope you can too. Right. But I was at least able to just start some conversations, um, you know, on Zoom, like uh, everything has been. <laughs> 
Um, like we're doing right now. (laughs) Which was great. So I was able to kind of, I identified a few organizations and people that I was interested in connecting with in the grant and um, have been able to have a few conversations. And I'm grateful to the foundation too, that there's, uh, there's a lot of understanding that, you know, the original idea has changed. So there's some flexibility yeah. in terms of like the time frame of the project. So I'm uh, looking forward to continuing some of those conversations and, and learning over the next uh, few months as well. Yes. So speaking of the conversations that you've been having, are there any models or ways of working that have emerged out of those conversations that you think would be helpful to people that are listening that are embarking on doing trauma-informed work with their own companies? Yeah. And I, I guess I'll, I'll begin by saying I by no means consider myself an expert in this area, which is why right. I wanted to like go on this journey yeah, and, and learn from people who I did. Maybe they went, might not call themselves experts, but in my view, were certainly further along uh, on their journey than I am. <laughs> right. And so two organizations that I've connected with already are in Chicago, the uh, Story Catchers, um, which is a wonderful organization that work primarily with justice-involved youth, both young people that are currently in juvenile detention uh, facilities and also young people that are transitioning out of that. And I spoke with, I think, about five or six of, of their staff, like from their, their founding artistic director down to uh, some of their teaching artist staff wow. and was so grateful for their time and willingness to chat and um, definitely something that was incredibly inspiring and um, in my research so far I've not found other examples of this mm-hmm. is their practice of um, employing full-time social workers uh, as members of their company essentially so that they have incredibly skilled teaching artists who provide that kind of content and sort of skill yeah. to the young people they work with but also recognizing because of the population that they're working with, like there are so many other needs that need to be addressed and it would be really unfair and um, just I probably like really optimistic to try and think of achieving a project with like desired outcomes if you're not taking into account all of the various um, access barriers, both physical barriers like getting to a place or if you're confined into a place yeah. during COVID, you know, when you're not able to visit into a facility and, and, and engage with young people, how do you connect? Right. But also young people out of that system, too, that, you know, might not have access to transportation or, or you know, other ways of, of getting to a, a place. So, yeah, I, I was able to really also chat with like their social worker, which was um, so cool. And, and I think really helped me think about um, some of the questions that I'd already started thinking about in terms of those times in my life and practice where I felt like this work is like verging into territory now where I don't feel I have like the the skills or the experience to necessarily respond in the best way Yeah, and think about like, wouldn't it be great if in those moments I, there was someone else who had a different kind of expertise, whether that's from a clinical mm-hmm. social work background. I'm sure many TYA artists can think about like times where they were maybe working on a project and like getting young, young people to kind of show up yes. and be on time and be prepared um, is, is really hard. And if you find out that there's like many things going on in that young person's life that makes it really, really hard for them to show up on time and be present, right. having a social worker that perhaps could like, you know, address some of those issues and find potential ways of dealing with them um, is huge. So, right. so that, that was definitely a great conversation. I, I'm certainly a huge admirer of their work. And then their sort of model as well. Mm-hmm. And that, that is definitely one organization that I hope in the future I'll be able to come and visit and see some of their work in, in, uh, in person. Then I also just, I had a couple of conversations toward the end of last year with some folks in uh, Phoenix from Rising Youth Theatre, mm-hmm. which is uh, another youth theatre organization that I was aware of and a huge admirer of their work. 
and particularly in terms of their focus on really exploring like different models, I think of, I guess, like leadership, but also like thinking about what does an ensemble of young people and adults working with young people look like. Okay. Um, and really kind of pushing back against some of the more traditional, very top down where yeah. it's like the adults are in charge and it's like, okay, kids are like, we're doing the show and like, this is what you've got to do. And um, right. I'm not to say that, you know, programs like that aren't important and ha- don't have a place in the world. They're just traditional. Yeah. But, but thinking about like what, what happens when we create a space for young people to really step up into leadership positions in a, yeah. in a different way. And I think that's, um, they have some models that I think are really great. And I think more similar organizations would really kind of take to heart. Mm-hmm. So both of those conversations have been, again, super inspiring and helpful. And also just while I knew a couple of people who like worked with those organizations, I think too, it was just a wonderful reminder of, I don't know if you've ever had this kind of experience where like, there's maybe somebody who's like, whose work you know and admire and you kind of want to talk to them about it, but like, there's that like, oh, yeah. like, well, you know, I'm just this like, nobody like. Oh yeah, completely. But like, they're not going to have any time for me. Mm-hmm. But I've been so like moved and touched by how many times I've sort of put the request out there yeah. and people have been so willing to talk and like give me their time. Yeah. I will add that I was able to like use some of the funds from the uh, the grants to like pay people for that time as well. That's always going to help. Really important. <laughs> Very important. But I say that to, to say that I think like that's definitely something that I've been sharing with like younger artists that I'm kind of working with is that like it never hurts to like if there's someone that you want to talk to and like pick their brain, you know, reach out. Um, they might say no, but they might also say yes. So yeah, it's been great. And also there's in the conversation that sort of led to this when you posted how this sort of looking for people that were thinking about this, the book that I, I don't remember who it was in that sort of thread on Facebook mm-hmm. mentioned a book called Staging the Personal uh, by a, a, a guy called Clark Bain. I ordered that book like immediately when I saw that person because I was like, yes, that's exactly what like I'm trying to learn in this right. in this project. And I have to say, I'm only like a few chapters into it, but it is, it's fantastic. And I think like a lot of the questions that he's raising and um, for anyone else who's sort of interested in this work, I I would say that that is a great place to start is is by reading that book. Yeah, I'll be sure to link that book in the show notes for this episode. So if anybody's interested in buying that book, you can easily access it there. I'm really interested too in the model with, I think it was Storycatchers Theater. You said that they have the social workers working alongside the teaching artists. Now, do the social workers, do they have any kind of an arts background or is that something that you found out through your conversations with the company? I don't recall. Right. I want to say I, I I don't think the particular person I spoke to did. Yeah. But I think that's, yeah, that's really interesting. And that, um, I know you. Uh, a later question you had for me was like, talk about some of the work I'm doing in Detroit right now. But when I had that conversation with the folks in Chicago, that was immediately like, okay, who do I know that I can get locally who has that expertise to kind of come and join me on, on this project. And I actually yeah. knew someone who uh, was a former teaching artist and had a background in theater who just last year graduated with her MSW. Oh, wow. And so I'm trying to kind of like bring her into the yeah. work now, which like that's, I, I'm incredibly grateful that that she said yes, um, because she, but yeah, she has now that clinical experience, but also an understanding of like what you do in a theater workshop as well, right. which is great. I don't know if that's maybe a requirement for like the, the you know. Yeah the best kind of person for that role. I, I think it certainly helps. But I think that was something I really appreciated from the conversations with the, the staff there too, was that respect for like each other's skill set. Yes. Like teaching artists do have like a very specific set of skills that are important and needed. Right. But it's also okay just to like not 
be the expert in everything. Yeah. And to know when, like, you know, it's it's good to take advice or follow certain procedures set in place by someone with a little bit more of a different set of experiences. Right. I don't know about you, but I don't need to be the person in the room that knows everything, is responsible for every little thing. Like, that's too much. <laughs> right. I know I certainly, like, experienced that in my sort of younger days as a sort of, like, baby yeah. teaching artist, I guess, where, like, I felt sometimes the pressure to, like, always feel like I had to have the answer to everything. Yes. And I think also, like, there's a lot of privilege and, um, like, cultural and racial, like, aspects of this as well, where, like, I'm at a point in my work where I feel very comfortable if someone asks me a question, I do not know the answer, like, to say that, to just name that uh, and, and say what it is. Like, I don't have mm-hmm. that that information like let's figure it out yeah but i've had really interesting conversations with friends of mine who are teaching artists who do similar work who are not says white man and realizing when like if they say that kind of thing in a space how that can maybe sometimes like really cause them to like lose some like respect perhaps yeah like it's really messed up like when i i had that conversation with friends i was like yeah. damn like that's you're right I, I had never thought about that before but I say all that to say, like, I, I do think there is, like, there is a time and a place where it's, I think it is the right thing to do to say, like, I, you know, I don't have that information. I don't have, have an answer to that. And that's okay. And it took me a long while to be able to sort of yeah. be comfortable saying that, I think. Yeah. And I think that's the same for a lot of people. Or I think many people can identify with that. I mean, I certainly can. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm much more comfortable with saying, you know what, let's figure it out. Because yeah. <laughs> I don't know either now. But yeah, it's it's a journey getting there. But yeah, I think it's I think it's really fascinating that I'm kind of like sidebarring, but I love that you brought up, you know, the respect for each other's disciplines because I think especially going forward, that's something that can really benefit people. You know, like maybe you are a social worker that, you know, has done therapy and, you know, makes a living, was also interested in theater at some point, And you kind of like forgot about it because, you know, yeah. you just like started doing your thing. There is a lane for you where you could take the skills that you have and apply it towards something that, you know, you might have been passionate about earlier on in your life or at some different part, you know. And yeah, I think finding those ways for interdisciplinarity within the work that we do is only going to make the work stronger and serve the people better. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So speaking of which, are you seeking people to collaborate with you? Still, are you trying to have more conversations about this work to inform the grant work that you're doing? Yeah, totally. I mean, I I really don't have a limit on, well, I guess I do in terms of like how much of the grant I have like available to like offer people a little, you know, stipend to, yeah. for their time. But I'm definitely open to anyone else who's maybe like thinking about some of this, these similar things or perhaps has maybe been, you know, on this journey longer than I have too, that, that has a lot of um, useful information to share. Definitely. I'd love to, to hear from anyone else who, who would like to chat. I don't really have a end goal of this right. project. Like I may decide to write something about some of the conversation I've had. I don't know. Really my, my, primary goal was just to like come out of it feeling that I had learned more and felt like a more informed you know practitioner yeah so um yeah would love to chat to, to anyone else who's interested in in these things as well yeah I think you know anything that you can do to share the information that you're garnering from these conversations is going to be really useful to a lot of people because yeah. I can only see you know the kind of work that's going to be happening when people can be safely in rooms together 
You know, mm-hmm. there's going to be a lot of feelings that people got to work through, especially yeah. young folks, you know, yeah. being isolated for so long. And yeah, it's, it doesn't have to be, and it shouldn't just be on the backs of teaching artists. You know, the, mm-hmm. I don't think we're totally equipped to handle everything. You know what I mean? And that's right. no, and that's an okay thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's an okay thing. <laughs> when I studied applied theater in my master's program, the ideology do no harm was shared with us. But one of my colleagues, Hananiah Wiggins, suggested that we strive to do the most good. And I really like working with this ideology because it hopefully will guide you in your work in such a way that you're listening and serving your participants the best way that you possibly can. But there's a lot of pressure placed on the work that teaching artists do. And, you know, we can't solve everything (laughs) and we're not equipped to handle everything and things don't always end in a kumbaya moment. So I'm curious... Would you be willing to speak to a time when you might not have gotten it right or when the process might not have gone as planned? Yeah. Uh, well, there's been quite a few. <laughs> not like all of them, but right. you know, there's there's a few times I can think back now to like, you know, in hindsight with more experience and, uh, you know, I might look at that particular project and say like, no, did I, could I have done more in that in that moment to, to you know, to make it a, a, a better um more supportive experience yeah but there definitely was one experience that i had i think was probably of those like the the worst one that i've had in my career (gasps) i was working in a in a professional youth theater company for a while and in that particular period i had done a few projects uh, with this company and i and i really felt like it was a great sort of artistic home and the theater was going through some like structural changes and i was asked to step into the artistic director role in an interim um um, stage so I was only in that position for probably about nine months mm-hmm. and uh, and during that kind of had to make like a lot of quick decisions like in the middle of the season yeah. and like you know direct a show and like move things around and uh, direct a musical I'd never directed a musical before and I you know like okay I guess I'll do it now <laughs> why not but also as part of that like something that I was really kind of pushing for to sort of like like move the culture of the organization um, a little mm. bit was uh, this was a company that had historically done professional theater free audiences with adult actors performing alongside young people, which I think is a great model. And I think there's definitely yeah. um, a lot to be said for that. But I also love work where it's entirely young people and like devised work and sort of creating that space where like yeah. you're creating the opportunity and space for young people to like to make the work that they want to make and not necessarily like you know, be cast in the show that like some adult decided was like going to be on the season that year. Yes. So I sort of pitched this idea of a devised project that would end the season. Uh, we sort of pitched it as a project about like a device piece about adolescence, about like the messiness of being a teenager, which like in hindsight too, like <laughs> it's so complex. And, like, <laughs> there's so much you could talk about there. And, you know, I learned so much. I was reminded so much too about like the demands we put on young people sometimes when like their bodies are changing so much and their brain is still developing and like sleep patterns are completely like it's crazy you know off the chart and like the 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 way that we like force young people into like school timetables and after school stuff like it goes against everything that like your body is telling you at that age like the fact that school starts so early like yeah that's very real like 16 year olds are not in the best like frame of mind at like seven o'clock in the morning for math like it does not make sense no there's studies about this. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so yes, yeah, so we were, were uh, myself and a colleague were like co-directing and co-devising this this piece with a company of thirteen young artists, and it got quite deep and it got quite personal. And mm-hmm. I was proud that we had sort of created a space for young people to really feel like they could like make this piece what they wanted it to be. 
but then like a lot of the, the the ensemble were dealing with like questions about their identity or like their gender identity and sexuality yeah and again like going back to what i said earlier like from my experience working in the uk with young people in this sort of field compared to the us mm-hmm. there's a lot more sort of space uh, an openness i think to talk about those things in the uk than there is here oh and it then and, and that sort of yeah and as that sort of to happen the process i was like starting to think like is this is this gonna go down well unfortunately like other like more senior members of the um the company kind of got word of like some of the content that was being developed in the piece and i don't think any of it was like inappropriate in in yeah. any way it was like the truth of the young people and like you know so often we don't let young people like really like have a place to sort of speak or unpack those things right right so so then there were some like questions raised about like whether this was an appropriate piece and we were inviting school audiences to it as well yeah and a decision was made out of my hands that the piece should be postponed i still to this day don't know if it was like genuinely that that was what they thought would happen or if it was just like another way to kind of like make this show not happen because it never did in the end but it was more so like the way that like once that decision had been made how it was presented yeah. to both like the ensemble of young people and like the myself and the other kind of adult teaching artists working on the project which is really cruel um, yeah. we had a rehearsal that like you know the kids were basically told like the show is on hold go home we'll you know we'll update you on what's happening like when we have more information like myself and my colleague who were like co-directors were like kind of blindsided and I really like had no words to say in that moment I had another colleague who like I'm still to this day like so grateful that like was moved to tears by like what was happening but just said like the most in that moment like the perfect thing to say to the kids but then like ran out of the room like sobbing himself because he was really just distraught by what had happened right yeah I went to the bar like that night with a couple colleagues and we're still (laughs) just sort of sitting around like what the hell just happened like that was right that was really really messed up I knew at that point that I wasn't staying with the organization it was quite clear that my sort of thoughts of like the kind of youth theater I wanted to uh, sort of develop there was not the direction that they wanted to go in and I was with that like I I went into that experience saying that like you know I recognize that this is like a, a weird situation where I'm sort of getting this like long longer sort of interview period I guess for this job that maybe I think I want and maybe I don't think I want you're right and and so it had become quite clear that I wasn't yeah, that it wasn't the right fit for me. And I was okay about that. I'm yeah. you know, mature enough to, to accept that. But I wasn't okay with the way that like the, the kids were treated, the young people were treated in this process. Yeah. That really stings to this day too. And so like, even though I had only like a few more weeks left on my sort of contract at that point, I was like, I felt so powerless and I didn't really know like, like what I could do. And I was like, well, I actually had that weekend, I was going out of town. So it was actually a really cool opportunity to, mm-hmm. I was at a, like a theater conference at the Kennedy Center. So I had like the opportunity to just like chat to a lot of like mentors and like colleagues and say like, yeah, so this thing just happened. I don't really, like, <laughs> really know. I'm still like processing it. I don't really know right. like what I should do and had some really great, great conversations and came back like that Monday and was like, I, again, there's so much that's out of my control here, but like the only thing that yeah. I felt I still had control over was like, when I decided to go. Yeah. So that was that day. I was like, today's my last day. And this is why. I love that. And it meant like I, you know, I had a weird sort of departure from like the young people that I'd worked with for many years. But also it turned out to be like the best thing ever because like in those few conversations I was able to have with young people, I could say like this really horrible thing happened to us and I, I wish it hadn't happened. I wish I could have done more to, you know, not let it get to that point, but it did. And like, right. 
I don't like I don't support this and I'm not gonna like I'm gonna leave because sometimes I feel like you know you have to like stick by your values and like yeah it was gonna affect me financially I didn't really know like what I was gonna do next but like it felt like that was the the only thing I could do in that moment yeah and now like a, a few years on really really grateful that like I think I, I hope that like me deciding to take that step meant that the relationship with many of those young people has shifted now into like you know this weird hybrid when like the students become your colleagues and friends right yes. I'm also like super proud of like who they are and what they're doing and I think while that experience was um, was traumatic for many of us, I think it also helped us rethink like the kind of artists that we wanted to be yeah. and to not create situations like that that could happen again. So still wish that it not happened, right? But right? I definitely think I'm at that place now where like I can look back on it and be like, yeah, okay, like I've, I've come out from that experience now a, a better artist, a better person. And I'm really proud of, I can say too, like I really stuck to my values. Yeah. And be able to kind of like, provide that as a lesson to, to the young people as well. And, right. and I guess the last thing I'll say on this is to the the theater's credit, like after I left, they did offer the young people space to like revisit the piece. Oh, they did? But by that point, it was like, like at least a third of the original ensemble had like graduated or were like, you know, going to college and stuff. Yeah. And like the young people themselves decided like, actually, if like if we're not able to do it with the original ensemble that we had in the way that we wanted to, like, we'd rather not do it. Yeah. And I was so, like, proud when I heard that that was, like, the decision that they had made. Okay, we didn't get to do the show that we wanted, but, like, as an ensemble, for them to, like, make that kind of collective right. decision, I was like, damn, like, yeah, proud. Yeah, that's huge. I mean, for young people especially to, you know, have an opportunity given to them and then to be like, you know what? We're sticking to our values on this because it's that important yeah. and to not take up that opportunity. That's yeah. huge. So, you know what? Good for you. Good for you. I don't know if anybody told you this, but good for you, Andrew. Thank you. It means a lot. Thank you for sharing that story because, you know, I think a lot of times we do get stories of people like, you know, that like they stick to their values and they like leave that job or they end that relationship or whatever it is. You know what I mean? But you don't hear about what happens afterward. Yeah. Oftentimes you don't hear about people thinking about the people that might be watching or what that message, you know, how it can resonate too. By taking a stand right. and sticking to your values, like yeah. it's not always easy, but sometimes it's so important. It's so important. It can yeah. especially when it comes to when you're working with kids. Because right. they're always they're always looking, they're always listening, and they're always paying attention. Yeah. You know? So to kind of switch gears <laughs> a little bit. So you recently shared with me that you're doing an ethnographic project with youth in Detroit that are experiencing homelessness. And I would love to know more about that project and where you're at with it and what's going on with it right now. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about the work. The, the idea for this work really is connected to that last story in many ways, too, that like after that happened and I was in this sort of like, well, like, what am I going to do now? Right. Like I had other work and I, you know, I, I had other things to kind of focus on. But it did like it did cause me to like pause and reflect to be like, OK, like, do I want to still work in theater fame audiences? Like, yeah. is that the place for me? I also was teaching in a, a university setting part time at the time, too, mm -hmm. but starting to feel a little more like that, like that I was ready to, to move away from that, too, just in terms of like felt like I didn't want to become kind of one of those jaded like <laughs> college professors. Right. Yes. And so I was at this really like, uh, I guess, like early, like midlife career crisis. And I was like, OK, like if I could like just wave a magic wand and like 
make the kind of work that I really want to be doing right now? Like, what would it be? And I immediately thought back to when I was in London and I was doing my master's degree. I did an internship with a company and then worked with them very um, for a very short period of time. Mm-hmm. It was a third company that worked with young people who experience homelessness and also had a focus in Boal's work and used form theater as a, um, you know one of the primary kind of modes of recruiting young people from various organizations to kind of come on board on a time-specific project, cool. create work kind of based on their experiences that would then be toured to, up to schools and other kind of youth organizations. Nice. And I loved it. It was super hard. And, and there were many times in that work too, where like clearly we're not the like, you know, come by our moments, like things right. were really bad. <laughs> but yeah, I, my sort of immediate thoughts went back to like that work. And I was like, I really enjoyed that. I felt it ticked all the boxes for me as a data artist, but also it felt like it was doing work that was really important in the world, mm. particularly with a population like that, where in the UK, at least at that time, like there was yeah. much more support and systems in place to help people transition into more kind of um, supportive living and, and for young people that were rough sleeping or maybe in just, you know, precarious situations. There's not so much of that here, for sure. And and I think sort of youth homelessness too is, when we think about homelessness, probably, you know, most of us might immediately go to like the image of the person on, on the street or by the side of a road panhandling. And, right. And I, like, and I say that not to say like, um, to sort of put down, you know, that aspect of homelessness. Um, it's real and it exists. But I think it's more visible and thinking about young people who even might, you know, be in, have a place to sleep at night. Right. But that place may not be safe or it may be, you know, a place that they can sleep that night, but they don't know where they're going the next night. Yeah. And that in itself is a really precarious situation and scary. I've only lived in Detroit about four years now. And as I was moving to the city, I was kind of thinking about like right. the kind of work I wanted to do here, but also be very like careful, intentional about like seeing what else was happening in the city and um, feeling like where, you know, might I see a place for me? And, and so I went kind of went back to that idea. I was like, I'd love to do something in Detroit with, with that population. So I, I sort of came up with this idea yeah. that got successful funding from the Knight Foundation. Um, so in Detroit and a few other cities across the country, the Knight Foundation does this great um, arts challenge where you can sort of pitch an idea of how you're going to use the arts as a way to kind of engage or like address issues in your community. Yay! I applied the first year, didn't get past the first uh, round. I applied the second year and like, made it to the end and got some funding, which was great. And so the project that time I um, I pitched was Sofa Stories Detroit. And the original plan that we're still hoping we will mm-hmm. be able to get to is engaging uh, with a couple of organizations that serve this population to do some research and some kind of writing of individual like monologues, solo performance pieces. Yeah. From the perspective of young people who have are in housing insecurity and maybe have had to um, couch surf and like sleep on a friend's sofa or like move around from place to place, maybe been in shelters as well. Mm-hmm. And then we would perform these pieces. Uh, one actor would perform these pieces on sofas um, outdoors in uh, public spaces across the city. Our plan is to still do that. We were hoping to start last summer, but obviously COVID and many other things happened. But we were able to, I was able to kind of focus more of my efforts on the fundraising aspect last year and yeah. relationship building as well. And so I'm really, really grateful that we have an incredible community partner in the Detroit Phoenix Center, which is a wonderful mm-hmm. organization that serves 
young people who are currently in like housing crisis or maybe have previously um you know been in that situation and yeah. might might be expo- uh, at risk of like human trafficking and, and and many of the other intersections i guess of, of that world they're a tiny organization right. and their impact is is huge for the the work that they are able to do in the city and the impact is uh, i'm so inspired by and i was grateful that last year too i was able to like we weren't able to do as much of the work as we wanted to so I was really able to kind of like shift right. our focus a little bit into just really supporting them in a very quick turnaround where like, you know, lockdown happened, schools closed, people that were living in college dorms were kicked out, you know, and had maybe 48 hours notice to, to get out. Yeah, The Phoenix Center was like great at supporting uh, those young people and getting resources to people, buying plane tickets for kids, young people who you know, were in college the other side of the country and suddenly had no way to get home. And so we were able to kind of just, you know, support them in that That's mission, amazing. which I think really helped that kind of relationship. Oh, yeah. And so that now as we're kind of um, moving into this year and hoping that this summer, it's our hope that we'll be able to do some of these outdoor performances, um, even with some, you know, social distancing measures in place. Right. It was always our goal to have like, you know, a, a small audience anyway. So we're thinking that it's going to be a case of a sofa on a street corner or some public space with one actor on the sofa, one one audience member sitting, you know, six to eight feet apart from them. And really interesting. Uh, I'm really excited about them sort of bringing the aspect of homelessness, youth homelessness, that's often in, um, invisible to a much more kind of visible place, I guess. So yeah, I've got some great partners I'm working with on the projects, great um, community partners as well. I was really amazed that even in the terrible year that 2020 was, we were able to, to raise money and people were really generous. Right. We were able to do a little bit of engagement with young people. So like in the very early days of the lockdown last year, we were able to do um, in conversations with the Phoenix Center, we decided we would send out like an online survey mm-hmm. that was anonymous. Um, but then anyone who completed it, like we sent them 50 bucks, which wasn't much. But like in that moment, like it felt like this is something like tangible we can do to support you as you support us and like in creating this project. Right. And so like the the way that we are approaching it is that the pieces that we're creating are fictional. Um, it's not necessarily like a documentary or verbatim style piece where we're, you know, let's say I would interview you and like mm-hmm. then take your story and like an actor would perform that. And I've done work like that before. And and I, I right. you know, I think it has a place in, in the world. Definitely, again, in this like journey I'm on thinking about like engaging with a population that has experienced and is experiencing so much trauma that it's, it's, that it, it's asking a lot to like right. ask someone to share their story with you and like put that out on stage or in a public arena. Yeah. So I was sort of approaching it more as um, like, let's, have some conversation let's do our research and then let's create like fictional characters that hopefully young people who've experienced these issues can see themselves like in these characters but it's not tyler watching himself it's not tyler watching him like his story told back to him again i think there's definitely a place for that um but that wasn't the sort of direction that i was interested in right um so so yeah we've been we've been writing some pieces we're working towards we've been filming a few as well and trying to get them like um you know online as as a way to sort of just build a little bit of awareness i guess about the work but we're really hoping that it will sort of ramp up by like i said spring or summer i have a wonderful production manager that i'm working with who is really great about thinking about developing like safety measures and thinking about like okay like when we're able to get back to like other types of like performances like we're going to have to really think about these things both for the safety physical safety of actors and and crew members as well but also audience members so we're we're trying to do our best to to learn what we can um i'm grateful that i'm also i'm married to a nurse 
So I have that like go-to um, expertise there as well that my, my husband's not going to let me do this project if it's not, you know, if it's not safe. <laughs> yes! And I respect that. So, so for Stories Detroit is the project name. We have a pretty small web presence and social media presence right now, but yeah. we're starting to, we're hoping to kind of build that up over the next few months. If anyone listening is interested in, in hearing more about that, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram. And also let me know if you, know, you want to hear more about the project too. Yes, absolutely. Is your website just sofastoriesdetroit.com? It is. Okay, great. Awesome. Well, I'll link that in the show notes as well. Thanks. Of course, of course. I am so mad that I don't live in Detroit anymore. (laughs) This sounds awesome. Well, you're not that far. You can always come back. Hey, that's true. (laughs) And honestly, what a great way to get people back in seeing performance and back engaging with performance. It's like kind of a low stakes, like it's outside, socially distanced, you know, people can like wear masks if that makes them feel more comfortable too, you know, like all this stuff. So yeah, I've had that conversation with, with colleagues on the project thinking about it that like, yeah, it's, it's, it's unfortunate that we had sort of, I guess, like we found ourselves in this position, but I'm grateful that we'd already, we'd always had imagined it like this. So I agree. Like, I think we're, um, Unfortunately, I don't foresee a situation right now where we're going to be able to get back to live performances as we knew them right. till towards the end of the year. So I, I definitely think like there's going to be, I hope, more excitement from audience members to like, yeah, have like a little bit of that that live experience again. Not to, you know, to say anything about the quality of like the Zoom theater experience. <laughs> <laughs> I've got some thoughts yeah. about Zoom theater. <laughs> we're making it work. We're making yeah. it work. You know what I mean? Yeah. Speaking about theater, so to kind of just talk about theater in a general context, what do you love about theater? I think like what I said earlier, like the, I think it always comes back to like storytelling for me. Yeah. I'm a big old nerd when it comes to like reading plays. Like I, I, I love engaging with like drama and that uh, as, as a form of literature. Yeah. But also like when, you know, yeah, when you do experience like that live performance and it just, it, it you know, there's something about that um, that is so different than other forms of engaging in storytelling. And yeah, I um, I think definitely like we've all, we're all kind of missing that. Like I don't, again, as someone who participated in a couple of like Zoom theatrical projects last year, like I get it. And, and I, I get that it was, I think also a testament to like the resolve of theater artists to like find a way through. Yes. But I, I definitely miss, and I think many of us are missing that sort of shared experience, right? Of, yeah. of being in the audience and, and experiencing that when it's done well, like the magic of storytelling in, in that moment. Yeah, totally. On the flip side or on the reverse, what frustrates you about theater or our industry? Oh, so much. Naturally. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I definitely, Tess, I think while the situation of me in that previous um, theater organization like didn't work out, like that little glimpse of sort of seeing the challenge of like being both an artist and an administrator and like having to, you know, sell tickets to, you know, to get people in. I get it. It's hard. There's so many other things um, competing against, you know, getting people to come see a play. But I think there's so much more we can do to to make, um, make theater more accessible, both in terms of the type of work that we promote and sort of center as, like like in the canon, right? Yeah. Like we need to definitely stop, you know, putting old white dudes on such a, a pedestal. And I say that knowing that I will one day be one of those dudes. Uh, <laughs> right. But also like in terms of um, spaces too, like thinking I've, I've 
been grateful in the last year that I've not been a theater artist attached to like one particular building because I I I, I can't imagine what it's like yeah. right now to like to be empty and to you know still have bills to pay and so much of like a theater's identity wrapped around like that particular place when I don't I think yeah. theater should you know I think more theater should move away from that model of like the you know the institution the building and just be the company that makes work wherever. Yeah. I think some definitely like some companies that are doing that that is super exciting. Yeah, I think even back to like when I was working in London and I uh, a, a story I tell often is I took many of the members of my youth theater at the time to a production at the National Theater. We actually our theater company and and sort of the part of London we lived in was maybe about only 20 minutes down the road from the National Theater. But the disconnect like the the young people I worked with like would never go into that building. Even like we'd go on the bus and they'd be excited about like going to London. Even and, like my friend, like colleague and I would like look at each other and be like, like we're in London, but like <laughs> they realized that like that part of London is not like accessible to oh, them. Wow. And I we took them to like wow. one of like the holiday shows that was like pitched for young people. Yeah. And the the um, majority of the youth members were were black British young people. And within like mm-hmm. five seconds of being in the building, like two of the kids who kind of ran upstairs, like super excited, were accosted by security and sort of like asked like who would who they were, why they were there, like who was responsible right. for them. And I just remember like that, like being so angry that that was their first experience of entering that building. Like that's the, that's the welcome that they had. Yeah. And I know that those sort of things happen all the time across the world, across the country. And that frustrates the hell out of me about our industry. Like we have to get over, you know, the fact that, right? you know, if we really feel that our art form is for everyone, like we have to make the spaces that we occupy truly, you know, welcoming and accommodating to everybody. Absolutely. So much more I could say on that topic, I'm sure. <laughs> oh my gosh, totally. And I mean, you touched on <clears throat> so many important things. <laughs> One thing I want to highlight is that access. Yeah. It's having a model where you're not attached to an institution gives you a lot of freedom too. And yeah. in terms of access and the people that we've been creating content for and creating theater for, let's be real, it hasn't been for all people right. in the United yeah. States, especially. You know, so... I think having a model where you can go, you know, to different places and actually it gives you the freedom to do outreach is something that could be really beneficial to a lot of companies at this particular moment, because we're going to have to do a lot more work to get people back. And we don't just want to have the same people. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I don't, at least the artists that I've been talking to, they're not really interested in going back to how things were. You know what I mean? So... That's a cool way of looking at not having, you know, an institution. And anybody that is listening that might have a company that might not have, you know, a building, it's okay. It's okay. There we, there we go. <laughs> You'll make it work and it's going to be great. <laughs> and you're saving so much money not paying your bills. <laughs> so much money. All right, my friend, just a couple more questions. What is something significant that theater has taught you about life? Who? um... I, so now I do, I have a, a sort of side gig or day job now that I feel is very like, it's not 
theater in the traditional sense, but it's like very theater adjacent. I, I work with a wonderful nonprofit called Time Slips, and we do um, creative engagement with um, older adults, not exclusively, but often people living with memory loss. Yeah. And all of our um, techniques are rooted in improv and leaning into imagination, you know, as a way to kind of connect uh, yeah. with people that might be living with memory loss. And I had never done any work with that population before, uh, before this job kind of like, you know, found me and felt really lucky to, to get it. Yeah. Because it's a great job to have to also like, feel connected to the work that I do, but also provides me the space to continue the other kind of work I want to do. Right. But as part of my specific work with this organization, I am always having conversations with caregivers who don't think that they are creative. Wow. And so I'm like, I feel like I'm moving a little bit away from theater specifically here, but it always, it, I think so much of it is that like, as a society, like we value creativity and imagination and children and we nurture it. But then so many times, there's that moment it's like oh like time to grow up like you got to get a real job yeah. or like you don't you know you don't exercise those creative muscles as much yeah and it's really interesting when i have conversations with like caregivers who are like you know experiencing like really hard stuff and like trying to care for a loved one that is you know might not remember who they are but then like like trying to get them to kind of lean to to go back into that space of like creativity and like wonder uh, and exploration that like the kids have naturally for the people that haven't like forgot it, they get our techniques like right away. But then for so many other people, like it's really hard to get them back to that place. So I say all that to say that I think theater and creativity has really taught me about like the power of the imagination and the importance of whatever, however you define creativity or whatever, whatever like creativity is for you, the importance of like mm -hmm. nurturing that. Because to lose that is 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 so sad. And uh, again, like I have working in this kind of field now for only a couple of years, moments where I've seen like, um, yeah, like the power of imagination that can, it's not theater in the traditional sense, but it's that storytelling, right? It's like, you know, it's, it's using yes and, and like leaning into the moment, however like weird or painful it might be. And, and like yeah. making something new out of it, I guess. Yeah, just that idea that like we all have imagination and it's not like childish or like babyish to play and explore, right? No, not at all. I wish that uh, I wish that more grown-ups knew that. Yeah. Um, so that's and I'm grateful that now I have that this opportunity to like to remind myself of that because sometimes right. I can become that like jaded like theater person. <laughs> Oh my god. <laughs> You're speaking to that jaded theater person. <laughs> but that's so real. I mean, as you get older, the opportunities for play become scarce and few and far in between. And that's so horrible because we still need it. You know, like there are studies out there that show what play does for the brain and how it alleviates yeah. stress and facilitates development yeah. and learning and memory and all kinds of healthy things for us. And so I, um, an example I often use is that I also love like when I've had the experience as an adult to like be in the audience of like a show that is clearly designed for children. Yes. And if like puppets are involved and yeah. like getting a glimpse of like other adults or grownups, like, see that inanimate thing like come to life and believe yeah like that that's the thing that we need more of right uh, oh, it's like tapping absolutely. into that like childlike wonder yeah and and believing you know that the thing you're seeing is you know you know it's not real but like it's okay to believe that it is right right i love that yeah and now i miss it oh now God. that i'm talking about it <laughs> i know 
know. I need to go find myself like, you know, the coolest baby theater after this pandemic is over. I have to tell you about this show that I saw. It was so cool. It was, uh, you know, Eric Carle's books, like The Very Hungry yeah. Caterpillar. They did like an off-Broadway production of it for like kids that had all, like four of his stories strung together. And they had these giant puppets that looked just like the just like the illustrations yeah. and they came out and they were in the audience i bought a ticket for this and i was like because i had gone to new york to for a movement workshop right. i was like part puppets also part fun because this yeah. is gonna be stunning right. it was gorgeous it was so it. cool and then what? to see like the audience and to yeah. watch like watch like these parents like see their kids to like light up and like sharing yeah. that magic with them yeah oh my god it's so cool yeah yeah Ugh. My friend, it's been a joy talking to you today. Seriously. Likewise. From trauma to theater magic. (laughs) (laughs) What a a trick. I know, right? So do you have any final thoughts that you want to share with me or anybody that's going to listen to this episode? Ooh. um, You know, something you you kind of like touched on uh, when we chatted last time, I've been thinking a lot about. I think it's really cool. And I've been thinking a lot about too in this like this strange year that I'm working with a couple people on the Surface Stories project who like graduated like, you know, with their theater degree in a pandemic and like are, you know, trying to find work that's just not there. And we know that it's hard enough to like, you know, find a way in this industry in a quote unquote regular year. But I was really, yeah, the conversation I had, I was like really impressed that um, knowing that like you've sort of had that experience too, like moving and like what do you do in this you know in this strange time where like the thing that you want to do is not happening yeah so I think like the fact you're doing this podcast and like finding new ways to to you know stay connected or like have conversations about this work is is really cool but also like not waiting for the opportunities to come like that's something that I would always like try to to share with um like young artists I was working with is like I like had to learn that kind of early on, like don't wait for like the dream job or gig to come to you, like make it happen. Yeah. And learning how to write a grant has been like one of the best things I ever did. Oh my gosh, you're clocking me. I need to learn <laughs> take that. A, take a class from grant writing this year. <laughs> yes, yes, I do. Oh my gosh. <laughs> That's great advice. And thank you. <laughs> I appreciate that. You're welcome. Oh my gosh. Great. <laughs> well, I think that we'll end it on that laughter then. I'll stop recording. Andrew, thank you so much for taking some time to share your experiences with me and with the listeners of this podcast. I can't tell you how much I really appreciate it. And I hope that your work has the reverberations and the impact that you all hope it will. And I hope that many people get to experience it. To those listening, I hope this conversation offered some new ideas for your own artistry. And if you want to know more about the exciting projects that Andrew is working on, visit andrewjmorton.com or sofastoriesdetroit.com. I'll also be sharing a link to his published work and the text we mentioned, Staging the Personal, in the show notes. So look there if you're looking for any of that fun stuff. Thank you for your support of life in theater. From the bottom of my heart, thank you. You are creative, valuable, and loved. Yes, you, listening to this podcast episode right now, and don't you forget it. You can chat with me and other listeners about the show and your own projects by following Life in Theater on Facebook or Instagram, at Life in Theater Podcast. 
If you want to help support me, the show, and new episodes, subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash lifeintheater, where you can get access to exclusive bonus Patreon tea, or early access to new episodes for as little as $5 a month. Patreon subscribers also receive an exclusive Life in Theater sticker and a handwritten note from yours truly. I'll also be announcing... <laughs> announcing, I don't know what that means. I'll also be announcing a giveaway soon that will be happening exclusively for Patreon subscribers. There has never been a better time to support life in theater. So what are you waiting for? Get over to the Patreon now at patreon.com forward slash life in theater. And now is the moment that you all have been waiting for. The announcement of the winner of the Win This Mug giveaway. And drum roll please. The winner is Kelly Fielder. See, I don't even need sound effects. I could just make my own sound effects. Congratulations, Kelly. I'm so excited that you won. I hope you always cherish this mug and enjoy your favorite tea out of it or coffee. I'm not sure which one you prefer. Probably tea, though. But you know, I'm excited that you won. Yay! I like to end every episode with a ghost-like quote. Ghost lights have a long history with theater, and they're still used on Broadway and in theaters all across the world to help the last few stragglers see their way out of a dark theater at the end of the night. I hope this quote helps to light your path. Somebody once said, We never know what is enough until we know what's more than enough. Billie Holiday, one of my absolute favorites. Thanks again for joining me on Life in Theater. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. Bye, friends.